Thank you so much for being here today. I mean, of all the days you could have slept in, to look outside, to see that rain, to hear that rain, and yet for some reason, you strange people decided to leave your warm, cozy beds, come out to this space, and worship God. Thank you for being Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you so much for being here today. That means a lot. That means a lot. Thank you for being here. Um, we are in part two of a message series called, It's Not That Complicated. It's not that complicated. This is a message series about the Bible, and I'm having a little bit of fun with these titles and these descriptions because let's just own the fact that, yes, the Bible is complex. It is the Word of God. It is the revelation of God. It's not, an, it's not exactly an easy read. I know that. But we're trying to make this book more user-friendly. We're taking a look at, well, why exactly is it that so many Christians have different opinions on different issues? And really, what I believe is that if all of us Christians, if all of us people who identified as Christians, if we all looked at the Bible and believed the same things about what it is, if we all believe that this really is the inspired Word of God, and if we all interpreted it the same way, and if we all actually read the thing, <laughs> then we'd all arrive at the same conclusions, and we'd be on the same side of every issue. And maybe that's too simplistic of a view, but that's what we're going for here. We're going for simplicity. Now, in part one of our series, we talked about what the Bible is. Not every book out there, not every book that claims to be holy or sacred or religious makes this claim about itself, that it's the inspired Word of God. But the Bible does make this claim about itself, that it is the Word of God. Now, last week, we talked about the fact that people can use that terminology. They can call the Bible Word of God, but they can mean different things by that. You can have a high view of what the Bible is, or you can have a low view of what the Bible is. Yes, do you remember this from last week? You can say the Bible is the Word of God, but it's really just like a useful guide and kind of understanding God, and maybe it's not perfect, and maybe we can't trust all the history in it, and maybe we can't trust all the teachings, and maybe we just there's some things we don't know about, but it's a useful guide. That's a low view of the Bible. Or you can believe, as I do, that we can have a high view of the Bible, that the Bible really is the inspired Word of God, and that it's accurate, and it's worthy of being read literally, consistently, all the way through. And we'll talk more about what that means next week. And so we, I have, I have this high view of what the Bible is. I believe that it is the Word of God. I believe that the history is accurate. I believe that this is the revelation of God to us. The book shows us who God is, what He desires, what He desires for us. This is God's revelation of His will to us. And as a church, we maintain a high view of the Bible. We believe that it is the infallible Word of God. Last week, we talked about the fact that the Bible is not one book, but is a collection of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Today, we'll talk about how we got this collection of books. Really, what we're talking about today <clears throat> is referred to as the canonization process, which is a fun word, isn't it? It sounds like something different, explosive. The canonization process, how these books were pulled together to become the Bible. Because if you look at history and all the books that were written, <clears throat> excuse me, and all the letters that were written, I mean, there's a lot of content out there, right? And so how do, of all the stuff that's been written out there, of all the history, of all the stuff that's been written by God, how did these books get pulled together to be our canon, our Bible? <clears throat> There are many questions surrounding the canonization process. There's also a lot of speculation surrounding this process. It's suspect. How do we know that we got all the right books in the Bible? How do we know this? Years ago, uh, somebody shared with me this quote by uh, David Cross. You guys know David Cross? He's an actor. He's a comedian. Mr. Show, Arrested Development. Anybody know who he is? All right, look up his you know, IMDB later on. He's a funny guy. He's a very funny guy, very talented guy. But he put some comment out there. I think it was... Uh, 
Twitter thing? I don't know. I don't do social media, really. Um, but he put this comment out there about the Bible, and I've referred to this before because I feel like this statement, and again, this is a comedian being funny, right? I feel like this statement perfectly sums up the questions that people have about the canonization process, the skepticism that people have about the canonization process, feeling like, well, I don't know where all this stuff came from, and really just really not sure of, of what this collection of text is and how we got that. So I'm going to read this quote for you, and it's a lot. I'm going to try to get this word for word, but this is what the comedian, David Cross, says about how we got the Bible. You ready? Here we go. The Bible was written, then edited, then rewritten, then rewritten, then re-edited, then translated from dead languages, then retranslated, then edited, then rewritten, then given to kings for them to take their favorite parts, then rewritten, then re-rewritten, then translated again, and then given to the pope for him to approve, then rewritten and edited again, then re-re-re-re-rewritten again, all based on stories that were told orally 30 to 90 years after they happened. Whew, that's a mouthful. <clears throat> and so that is what our friend David Cross has to say about the Bible. And really, it's a comedy. He's not trying to be, he's not a Bible scholar. He's not trying to give us a history. He's just trying to make something funny happen in this world. Yes, he's trying to elicit a smile on certain people's faces. But this quote just sums up perfectly this skepticism that people have about the canonization process. And this quote also perfectly sums up the assumptions that so many people make about this canonization process. This assumption that there's been some kind of editing or revising or subtracting or adding. Now, the irony in all this, and I'm not picking on David Cross because I don't know him, the irony in all this is everything that he says here in his humorous take, it's all 100% made up. <laughs> you know, this kind of vague description of how we got, the, he's just making this stuff up to be funny, yes? But that is irony. Doesn't that, doesn't that count as irony? He's saying that the Bible's all made up, but really his statement, is that irony? Somebody ask Alanis Morissette, does that count as irony? I think that's irony, right? So he's just saying all this stuff, but he's not, he's not researched it. You can't verify any of these vague descriptions that David Cross gives us. But here's the thing. For as long as the Bible has existed, for as long as there's been the written word of God, people have taken shots at it. People have questioned, is this real? Is this worth studying? Is this really valid? And, and some, of those questions, some of those questions make sense. We should question. If somebody says, well, I've got the Word of God for you, do you really have the Word of God for us? Because that could be a fabulous line. If you look over the course of human history, this has been one of the ways that people have been manipulated by those who are in power. They say, well, God told me this. God said this. And so, yeah, some healthy skepticism makes sense. But here's what I want to tell you about the canon. Here's what I want to tell you about the canonization process. This is my belief. I believe that the 66 books that we have in our modern-day Bible, I believe that those are exactly the books that God wants us to have in our Bible. With no exceptions, that's it. That's my belief. That the 66 books in your Bible right now are exactly the books that God wants us to have. You know why I believe that? Well, because I'm a pastor and I have to. That's how it works. Now, I'll give you two, I'll give you two reasons why I believe that. The first reason, I'll admit, is based on an assumption. Based on, maybe you would think of it as a reasonable assumption or a logical assumption, but it's still, I'm owning it, it's based on an assumption. I already believe that each of those 66 individual books were inspired by God, were written 
by God. Through human authors, but by God. I already believe the text itself is from God. My assumption is, wouldn't the same God who wrote those books orchestrate their coming together as the Bible? See what I'm saying? If, you, if you're like me, if you believe that God actually inspired these individual 66 books, wouldn't that same God also want to preserve the canon and preserve the integrity of his word? Does that add up rationally? Now, is that enough? Well, that's not enough evidence to really prove anything to you. Of course not. Of course not. But I'm just thinking, if I was God, which I'm not, right? If I was God and if I went to great lengths over human history to communicate myself through these individual authors and all these books existed, wouldn't I want to preserve the canon of those books? If you were God, which you're not, wouldn't you want the same? I want to preserve this. I've revealed myself to humankind. I want to lock this down and give the people without exception, without edit, the Word, the Word of God. So that's one reason why I believe we can trust the canon. Here's the other reason. This is going to take some time this morning. Here's the other reason. It is the history behind how those 66 books came to be known as the Bible. There is a history behind it. This is not just a matter of making assumptions. This is not just a matter of, well, let me have blind faith that there was some process that God put together. No, there is a historical reason why we can trust in our canon. Let me go through this. Okay? The Old Testament, we're going to start with the Old Testament. You guys ready for history today? We're going to start with the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is kind of easy to explain. Well, who wrote these books, and when were they written, and where did they come from? It's kind of easy if you have a study Bible. And so, look at this. I just happen to have some examples of a study Bible. This is the Zondervan study Bible. That's a fun word to say. Zondervan, isn't it? Yes, sounds like a magician. Zondervan, a Zondervan study Bible. If you have a study Bible and you open it up to any book, it will tell you, here's who wrote it. Here's approximately when the book was written. I also have another study Bible. This is the Ryrie study Bible. This is a more specific interpretation of the Bible. The study notes you're getting there are more specific. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But the same thing is true. If you have a good study Bible, that helps a lot. You can open up the book and say, okay, who wrote this? It might even tell you who they wrote it to. If there was a special occasion why it was written, it will tell you exactly what that occasion was. And so that's kind of simple. If you look at the Old Testament, see who wrote it, see when they wrote it, it's like, okay, that's how we got it. Right? It's just that simple. Of course, that does raise the question of verification. Yeah? <laughs> you just look at these books that make up your Old Testament, and you're just supposed to take the study Bible's word for it. Yeah? It does raise the issue of, well, who's validating this? Who's vouching for this? Who's cross-referencing? Who's checking this out? Is there any kind of voice speaking to the validity of the Old Testament canon? I'm going to give you a simple answer to that. The simple answer is, yes, is the voice of Jesus. In his lifetime, in his ministry, as you read those biographies that were written about Jesus, Jesus refers to the same Old Testament that you have he refers to it as the Law and the Prophets. He refers to it as Scripture. And so the same Old Testament that's in your Bible right now, the same content, that's the key word, the same content that you have in your Old Testament is the same Bible that Jesus referenced as the Word of God. That matters to me. That matters. That counts for something that Jesus referred to our old, the same Old Testament that we have as Scripture. There are only, here we go, there are only three differences <laughs> between your Old Testament 
and the Bible that Jesus referred to. Number one, language. I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that you all have English Bibles, okay? So that is different. The language is different. Second difference, here we go, is the number of books. Hang on a second. Hang on. What are we talking about here? How can it be the same if there's a different number of books? And this is one of these points where, listen, we human beings, we love to stir up controversy and speculation and what's going on here, looking for some kind of secret hidden agenda. No, there's just there's a different number of books because the books were divided differently, right? In your Old Testament, you have First and Second Kings. It would have been just one book in Jesus' day. You have uh, two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, two separate books in your Bible. They were combined in Jesus' day. So that's, it's just the division. You can look at that and say, well, the number of books is... Well, no, it's just how the books were divided. The third difference is how the books are arranged. Now, in your Old Testament, you don't have your Old Testament in chronological order, Right? And in Jesus' day, his Bible also wasn't in chronological order, but they were just arranged differently, okay? But the content, right, that's the key word, the content that you have is the same as the Bible that Jesus referenced. Does that count, Does that count for something to you? I mean, that matters. That matters to me. Here's why. Here's why this is significant. In Jesus' day... He had two different collections of texts that he could have referred to as Scripture. Two options to go with. He had the Tanakh. You heard that word before, the Tanakh? It's Klingon for Bible. Did you know that, Tanakh? No, it's Hebrew. It's Hebrew for Bible. He had the Tanakh or the Septuagint. All these fun words. Are you liking this today? He had those two options to choose from, the Tanakh or the Septuagint. Two different collections. Now, the Septuagint, it is all the books of the Tanakh plus 15 extra books. Oh, here we go with conspiracies again. These extra books of the Bible, 15, why don't we have them? What's going on here? Those 15 books have a name. Do you know what the name is? The Apocrypha. More conspiracies abound over the Apocrypha. And what is this Apocrypha, these 15 books? What is it? Well, to explain that, I'm going to have to give you some more history, okay? So let's look at the history of the nation of Israel. Here we go. How did this apocrypha come to be, and why was it included in the Septuagint? What's going on here? Here's what happened. If you look to your Old Testament, you will read about God's special relationship with the nation of Israel. And they have this yo-yo relationship. They go back and forth, and God says, you follow my commands. My commands ex exist for your own good. You follow my commands, and I will bless you. You stray from me. You go after other gods, and I will turn you over to your own desires, and you will be cursed. And back and forth they go. Well, eventually we get to a point in time where the, uh, Israelite, the, the nation of Israel is divided into two nations, divided into Israel and Judah. And eventually, okay, I'm flying through the timeline here, eventually both of those nations are conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Many are killed, but the rest are taken captive into Babylon. And then eventually the Persians take over the Babylonians, and the Persians let the Israelites go back to their homeland, back to the Holy Land, back to Jerusalem. But there's not a mad rush to get there because most of the Israelites grew up in captivity. That's the only home they ever knew. Right? And then eventually... After that, there's this dude named Alexander the Great. You've heard of Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great comes along, and it's the rise of his empire. So the Greeks take over, and when the Greeks take over, they make Greek the common language of the world, of the people. 
So Greek becomes the common language. Now, before Jesus is born into this world, the Romans take over. It's the rise of the Roman Empire. But the Romans were great at a few things. And one of the things was, if it's not broke, let's not fix it. So Greek remained the common language. That's some history. That plays into this whole Apocrypha Septuagint thing. And so we have this period of time called the intertestamental period. Oh, these terms. Intertestamental period, right? Before the, the New Testament, but after the Old Testament, between the Testaments. And during that time, the Apocrypha was compiled and put together. Fifteen books written about Jewish history, written about the nation of Israel, relevant to the nation of Israel, that they wanted to preserve these 15 books. Here's what's worth noting. If you go back and do a deep dive in the history, those 15 books that make up the Apocrypha, and some of them were written about, like um, kind of overlap with stuff that we have in our Old Testament, some of those 15 books were actually written during the intertestamental period. But those 15 books, here's what you need to know about them. When they were written at the time of their writing, they were not considered equal with the Word of God. And so we arrive at this time, this intertestamental period, and this Apocrypha has been organized, it's been compiled, and we have a situation among the Israelites. You've got the Hebrew people, but they don't speak Hebrew. A lot of the Hebrews don't know Hebrew. And so there were a group of 70 Jewish scholars, Israelite scholars, who said, we need to take the Bible, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and we need to translate that into Greek so that people can read it. And so this group of 70, which feels excessive, doesn't it? Why do you need 70 people to translate this? Can't you just get one guy and then a second guy to proofread? What's going on here? Well, 70 because it's the Word of God, and they wanted to get it right. <laughs> and so a group of 70, they got together and said, we're going to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, and we're going to go through this period, and it took years to do this. But while they were meeting, while this group of 70 was meeting, somebody raised their hand and said, well, wait, hang on, what about the Apocrypha? Don't we want to preserve that as well? Isn't that also, that history, isn't that also important to our people? And they're like, yeah, good point. And so when they translated the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew into Greek, they said, let's also include the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha plus the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek became the Septuagint. Okay. It's important to note that when that group of 70, when they put those 15 books, when they put the Apocrypha into their new edition of collection of text, at that time, those books were still not considered the Word of God. They were not considered the inspired Word of God. Now, on this rainy day, if you want to do some research, you can look into Jewish history. You can look into a collection of texts called the Talmud. And you can read about the, the rabbis, this rabbinical text, and the history of them compiling their information. And it's basically like, the Talmud's like, um, you know, you have other books that aren't the Bible, but also add to your understanding of God's Word. You've got a lot of books. Don't you have books like that? It's not the Bible, but it teaches you something about God's Word. So you had the Talmud, which was kind of like that, right? A rabbinical text, but it also records the history. And you can see that those books of the Apocrypha were never, they weren't considered the Word of God. I'm not saying they were evil. I'm not saying the Apocrypha is evil. I can't say that. You know why I can't say that? I've never read it. <laughs> I'm uninformed. I don't know. You know, I'm not saying that it was some kind of a wicked attempt to undermine. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just history, but it doesn't carry the same weight as the inspired Word of God. And so, intertestamental period, the Septuagint is written, 
And now you have the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and the Septuagint, which includes the Apocrypha. And Jesus arrives on the scene, and he could have chosen either one of these books to refer to as the Word of God, and he exclusively references the Tanakh, all right? And so if you've heard some kind of controversy of, well, I don't know about the Old Testament, what about these extra books, blah, 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 hang on, no, it's not that complicated, right? We go looking for mysteries, we go looking for scandal, we go looking for controversy in places where a lot of times there is none. It's just boring old history, right? And so Jesus, again, my main bullet point here is the Old Testament you have is the same Bible, same content that Jesus referred to as Scripture. You got that? Main bullet point? Your Old Testament is the same content as Jesus referenced as Scripture. Unless. (laughs) Unless you have a Catholic Bible. (laughs) Now it gets more complicated, right? The Catholic Bible, there are seven books from the Apocrypha, not all 15, seven books from the Apocrypha that have been crammed into the Old Testament in the Catholic version of the Bible. Why? Well, you got to move forward in time to the age of the church fathers, and there's this guy named Jerome, and Jerome went back through the Apocrypha, and even though the Apocrypha was not considered the Word of God when it was written, and even though it was not considered the Word of God when it was included in the Septuagint, this guy Jerome went through it and said, you know what, these seven books should be included in the Old Testament. And most people disagreed with him, but that version of the Bible became the version the Catholics adopted. So that's why there's a difference between your Bible and a Catholic Bible. Am I picking on Catholics today? No, I'm not picking on Catholics today. It's not, it's not Catholic picking on day, is it? No, it's not, right? That's in October. That's not today. We're not doing that today. I'm just trying to explain the difference, okay? And why did Jerome think those seven books are worth including? You'd have to ask him, but he's been dead for a while now, so I don't know. So that's why there's a difference between your Old Testament and the Catholic Bible. All right, whew. Everybody, we all got this so far? This all makes perfect sense so far, right? It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. And so again, your Old Testament is the same content that Jesus refers to as Scripture. Let's move on to the New Testament. Well, to understand how we got the New Testament, you need to know a little bit about church history. And so we'll move into a little talk about church history. What we have is the church age. In fact, we're in the church age right now. Jesus started this movement called the church. We are his people. We are his assembly. We are the movement of Jesus Christ in this world. The church age begins with the apostolic period, named after the apostles. And so Jesus appointed 12 apostles. He had himself 12 disciples, all right, that followed him where he was. You subtract Judas. There's a whole story behind that. You subtract Judas, and you add Paul, and now you have the 12 apostles. And so the church age begins with the apostolic period. The apostolic period ends when the last apostle dies. And then we move on to the age of church fathers. And so what you had is, in this this next generation, right after the last apostle died, which was almost certainly John, fun side note, John was the first follower, or one of the first three followers of Jesus, and he is the last surviving apostle. After he dies, the apostolic age ends, but you have a whole generation, several people in several churches that were trained by the apostles. And then you had the next generation after that. It's like, well, I never met John. I never met Peter. I never met Paul. But my pastor was pastored by Paul, by John. And the next generation after that. And so there's some discrepancy of when exactly does the age of church fathers end. It's several generations after the apostolic period is the age of church fathers. Very close to the original source. Here's a fun fact for you. All 27 books in your Bible, in your New Testament, 
All 27 were written during the apostolic period. That's one of the standards that would be applied. One of the criteria, were these books written during the apostolic period? And so Jesus is, he's died on the cross, he's risen from the dead, he's sent out his apostles. Apostle means a sent one. The apostolic age has ended, the age of the church fathers has begun. We're in 140 AD. And in 140 AD, some of the church fathers get together and say, we need to canonize this new covenant, this new testament. We have the Old Testament, we need a new canon. And so they get together and they begin working on this process. I said 140 A.D., they begin working on this process. It was complicated. You had these copies of texts floating out there. The, the biography that Matthew had written about Jesus was floating out there. Same with Luke, same with Mark, same with John. You had these letters written by Paul that were being circulated in the churches. They had to compile them all, verify them all, and then canonize them. It's a long process. 140, it begins. 220 years later, 220, 220 years later, they landed. There was a church father named Athanasius that landed on the 27 books that you have right now. 220 years. Why take it so long? Let's get this done. Well, it took so long because you want to get it right. And so by the time we arrive at 360 AD, now you have the change in power in Rome. Constantine was the emperor at this time. And Constantine, for better or worse, made Christianity the official religion of the state. I say for worse, because you can't merge what Jesus is about with state. That's a subject for another day, yes? And so Constantine, and we don't know Constantine's heart. Was he a genuine convert, or was he just trying to use Christianity as a power play? We don't know. We don't know his heart. But Constantine is really pushing on the church, pushing on the church father, saying, guys, we need a canon. And so Athanasius, a well-respected church father, comes up with this book, this list of 27. And most, most of those 27 books from the process beginning back at 140, most of those 27 were no-brainers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, all the letters of Paul from the get-go were no-brainers, were included in that list. And so Athanasius, it's 360, he comes up with this list of 27, he submits it to Constantine, and for what it's worth to you, Constantine says, yes, I agree. And so you've got Athanasius, a leader among the church fathers, saying these 27. You have the Roman emperor saying, yes, I agree. And then they take this list of 27 to a guy named Eusebius, fun name, Eusebius, take it to him. Eusebius was a church historian. Now, if you go back to your New Testament, Luke was the first church historian. And so generations later, you have Eusebius. He was the predominant church historian. So Athanasius says, listen, I've got this list of 27. You know, Constantine says it's good, whatever that's worth to you. Take a look at this. And so Eusebius had been tracking the progress of the church for the past generations, and Eusebius says, yeah, I think you got it. I think we got it. The 27 books are just, that's the canon. That's it. And so there you have it. You had Athanasius, you have Constantine, you have Eusebius, and then, you know what, let's just be sure about this. So they tag in two other guys. They tag in Augustine and Jerome. And these two guys would clash on certain issues. Jerome is the same Jerome that one of those extra books in the Old Testament, right? But even these two guys that didn't agree on everything agreed, yes, they agreed on the 27. So you have Athanasius, Constantine, Eusebius, Augustine, Jerome. All these heavy hitters agree it's the 27. Does that satisfy us? Well, they still weren't entirely sure. So you know what? We got to bring everybody in on this. All right, it's great that we all agree, but we got to bring all the church fathers in on this. 
we got to have a council meeting. And so that's exactly what they do. They have a council meeting in 363, held in Laodicea. Have you ever been to a church council meeting? Whatever you're picturing is not what they went through, okay? We're not talking about an hour and a half that you're looking at your watch. No, no, no. They are in it. They're debating, and they're going through. And some of the books that they were debating, they were not sure about, like the book of James. They're reading through the book of James, like, okay, it goes back to the apostolic period, but is what he's saying, does it contradict with what Paul's saying? And they had to read it, like, no, they're talking about the same thing here. And so they went through and they debated some of these books. The book of Hebrews, this book has been circulating since the apostolic period, but we don't know who wrote it. Wasn't it Paul who wrote it? I don't know. It doesn't sound like Paul. I mean, Paul usually introduces himself with an entire paragraph, and that's not here. And so there was some debate over these books, and they had this criteria that they went through. It had to be written during the apostolic period. It had to be apostolic content. If it was written by one of the apostles, that was a bonus. If it was written about one of the apostles, that's fantastic. You have books like Matthew, the very first, first book in your New Testament, was written by an apostle. You have the book of Mark. Well, Mark wasn't an apostle. His full name is John Park, John Mark, but he traveled with Peter. And so it's Peter's companion. So Mark's gospel is essentially Peter's gospel. Then you had Luke. Luke wasn't an apostle. He wasn't even an Israelite. He wasn't even Jewish. And yet he was a travel companion, the first church historian, a travel companion with Paul. Whew, you got all this stuff? This is, this is what they went through to canonize this. Let's go through this. Is it from the apostolic period? Does it contain apostolic content? Another criteria they put into place, does this add to the edification of the church? Edification, yes. The building up, the flourishing, the furtherance of the church. Is it consistent? Most of the books we have here, is it consistent with what we're being told? And so they debated at this council meeting. Hey, what about this Gospel of Thomas over here? Let's take a look at the Gospel of Thomas. Well, this was written about 100 years after Thomas died, so nope. <clears throat> and they went through that process. What about this Gospel of Judas? This Gospel of Judas over here, this Gnostic Gospel. Again, this was written about 30 years after Judas died, and it tells a completely different story from the rest of these guys, so nope. Clearly a forgery, clearly a fake. And they went through this process at this council meeting. And by the end of the council meeting, they determined, yes, the 27 books, the same 27 in your New Testament, are the ones that are actually the inspired Word of God. And that settled the matter. Almost. A few decades later, right, so this was 363, a few, few decades later in 393, like, listen, we got to go through this one more time, one more time. And so they have another council meeting in Hippo. Say, no, we, guys, come on, I know we've been through this, let's go through it one more time. This really matters, guys. And so they rehash it, and they go through all those books that they cut out, and they go through all the books that they were included, and they rehash it, and they debate again. And at the end of that second council meeting, they all agreed. This is it. These are the 27 books. They are all inspired by God. And that settled the matter. Almost. One more time. They did one more council meeting at 397, just a few years later. It's like, guys, I know, I know, I know, I know, but one more time. Three times now. Three times. And once again, the debate and the arguing. And are we sure? Are we sure? Are we sure? And at the end of that third church father council meeting, the third one, they had determined that the 27 books in your New Testament are the inspired word of God. And that really I'm not joking this time. That really was the last council meeting. So, my friends, that is the story of how we got our Bible. All good? You got it? 
You guys jot all that down and get it all? All those dates, all those names, all those times? Is there a quiz next? I don't know what you're here for this morning, but it's probably not a history lesson, right? So there's got to be a point to why I'm telling you all this stuff. And here's the point. Here's the point. I'm not expecting you to memorize all this stuff, yes? I think this is only the second time I've given a variation of this sermon in my life. And each time I've got to go back and remember the dates and the names and all this. Yes, it's not like fresh in my memory all the time. But here's what I want you to know. Beyond just your blind faith, beyond just a reasonable assumption, you have a reason to trust in the canon that the 66 books that we have today, there is a process that was gone through, a determination process, a determining process that was gone through to determine, yes, these are the books inspired by God that God wants us to have. You have a reason to believe. You have a reason to believe. You have a reason to trust in your canon, in the Bible. And the reason that I bring that up with you is because for as long as there has been the Word of God, there have been efforts made to undermine the Word of God, to undermine, to undercut the authority of the Word of God. Questions raised outside of the world of Christianity and within the world of Christianity. Well, can we really trust this? You know, what about the Apocrypha? Or these books edited? Did the Pope get his hands on it and rip some stuff out? Like all these kind of speculations. And again, I think we need to acknowledge that as human beings, so many of us, we love a good conspiracy theory. Don't we? Come on, be honest. Do you ever go down that rabbit hole? Conspiracy theories? Get stuck in a YouTube hole? Not you. Okay, well, I have, yes. I love a good conspiracy theory. But the history is just, it's kind of, it's kind of boring. It's nothing scandalous, right? So be on your guard. You can trust the 66 books that you have. When someone attempts to undermine that, be, be on your guard. How about that fun passage that Kelly read for us today? This warning from Peter. There are false prophets among the people, just as false teachers among you, and they will introduce, secretly introduce, destructive heresies, lies about God, but worse than guys. There's these variations, whoop, trying to steer people off of the truth. This has always been a thing. Denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves, and many will follow depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into dispute. Well, let's dispute this. Is this can we really trust this book? Can we really trust this history? Was this really supposed to be in the canon? All this type of thing. And they're agreed these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Well, I'm going to tell you the real history of the Bible. Really? Or are you just making something up to undermine the authority of God? Friends, I believe that the Bible we have, that the canon we have is exactly the canon, is exactly the Bible that God wants us to have. It is trustworthy. We can rely on it. Now all we have to do is read it. <laughs> And that is where we will pick up next week, how to read our Bible. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the tremendous effort that you have put into revealing yourself to us. We thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you for all the, the people that you inspired throughout human history to bring your words to life, to write those words down. We thank you for the church fathers that went through the painstaking efforts to verify and, and validate your word. We thank you for the canon that we have today. And so, Father God, we live in a world where there are people, again, inside the Christian community, outside the Christian community, that might try to undermine the authority of your word, and we just pray against that. Father God, give us confidence in your word. And beyond just having beliefs about your word, God, I pray that you would call and challenge each one of us to actually read it. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.